I invite you to turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, and uh, we're going to look at verses uh, 1 through uh, 5 here together today. As we come to this uh, chapter, we come to the second major topic that Paul deals with in the second letter to the Thessalonians. Only three chapters, two major subjects. The first subject was eschatology, or their view of the end times. Although Paul knew it was so important to teach them eschatology uh, during his first time with them when he planted the church. He was only there for three weeks, yet he taught them much about the return of the Lord. This is obvious as you read the Thessalonian epistles. He said, I've already told you these things. Although Paul had already taught them much about the end times and return of the Lord, someone, a false teacher, who uh, had a fake letter or a word of prophecy, false prophecy, uh, misled the church so that they thought they were going through the day of the Lord. And so chapters 1 and chapters 2, Paul takes time to answer that, to prove that the day of the Lord can't be here yet. There's certain things that have to happen first. So he writes this letter to correct their views of eschatology. The second subject, our final subject, occurs in chapter 3. This uh, subject involves ethics or an ethical problem in the assembly. There were some in the church of Thessalonica who were being disobedient to apostolic example and instruction by failing to work and support themselves and by living off of the generosity of other believers. And so... Before the conclusion of the verse, the book, which I see as verses 16 through 18, Paul instructs them about how to deal with disobedient believers. He starts with a general exhortation, verses 1 through 5, and then he gets to a specific one, verses 6 through 15. This morning, we're only going to look at the general exhortation about prayer in these verses. Although it is general, I believe, and have been praying that God would very specifically stir our hearts for what Paul says in these first five verses. Paul starts this section about the Thessalonians' disobedience and the issues that they're facing with prayer. These verses, I think, reveal Paul's deep-seated conviction as to the necessity and value of prayer. Without prayer, believers cannot accomplish anything. Can't do it. Paul knew that even he, as an apostle, would not be able to accomplish the things that God had called him to without prayer. I love how the last section ended, the end of chapter 2. Paul, in dealing with all the eschatology, ends with prayer. I love how this section starts in dealing with the ethical dilemma, one of the first Instances, I think, where Paul would call a church to be involved in church discipline. He starts with prayer. He really believes in the value of prayer, hence he wraps it around every initiative and topic that he addresses with the Thessalonian assembly. Now this preliminary word about prayer, I think, comes in three parts, or there are three parts to it in verses 1 through 5. So i got three points to the outline today. Number one would be Paul's request, verses 1 and 2. 
Look down in your Bible at verse 1. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. So verses 1 and 2, Paul's request here for prayer starts it all off. I think we have to remember, you know, Paul, uh, this is uh, the great apostle to the nations. He was being used by God. He was blessed by God in immeasurable ways. I mean, when I stop to think this week of the extreme blessing it was for Paul the apostle to be the, Gentile, the, the apostle to the nations, the light to the Gentiles, what a significant calling. I don't know that really many other human beings had been called to such a significant ministry, to be the first person to take the gospel to cities of damned men and women who needed to hear the good news. This is a significant apostle Paul, and he asked prayer from this little insignificant church. He was the pioneer missionary chosen by God. He takes the gospel to the provinces of Galatia, Asia Minor, Bithynia, Macedonia, and Achaia. He had been shaped and fashioned and trained and gifted by God to be the light to the nations. He had a high calling. He was a gifted person, yet he starts here by requesting prayer. I find his request being twofold. You can see them very easy in your Bible. Um, you, you see the word that in verse 1 and that in verse 2. These are his requests. He gives two requests. Verse 1, that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. I call this request Paul's primary request. His primary concern always then have to, deal, have to do with Jesus. And this prayer request is no different for when Paul says that the word of the Lord, when he says Lord, he is talking about Jesus. As a matter of fact, according to my study this week, I actually took the time to do this. I think every time Paul uses the word Lord in your New Testament scripture, he means Jesus. Okay, so what is Paul's request? It has to do, his primary request has to do with Jesus. He specifically says that Jesus' word would advance. Now, when we hear the phrase, the word of the Lord, I think we often think of the scripture, and in some sense, rightfully so. We think of the written word of God. But when Paul says that, in this context, the word of Jesus, or Jesus' word, I think that he primarily has not the written word in his mind, but the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And he can do this because this is the primary way that any new covenant believer is introduced to the word of the Lord, through the gospel, through the good news of Jesus Christ. But, but notice exactly what Paul says about his desires for the gospel. Verse 1. They should pray that the gospel does two things. That it speeds ahead and is honored. Okay, The word speeds ahead, those two words come from one word, treko, which means to run. 
to run. It can be literally used of a runner. See, the apostle loved to use vivid figures of speech when he talked about the way the gospel would advance. I, I can't help but think of in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, he uses the metaphor of a trumpet blast or the sounding of thunder. Remember this? From you, the word of the Lord sounded out, it trumpeted out, it blasted out. Here, he compares his desires for the gospel to a runner. He personifies the gospel as a runner. So Paul desires for the gospel to be running. Now, where does Paul get this idea? Well, I think it may be that Paul has Old Testament scripture in his mind. As there is a time in your Old Testament Bible when David, the psalmist, used this phrase that the word of the Lord would run. So it may be that he has Psalm 147 in mind. Verse 15, you don't have to turn there, but verse 15 says, uh, He sends out his command to the earth, his word runs swiftly. So you've got the word of God running swiftly in that psalm. The, psalm, the, 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 the psalmist uh, speaks of God's word in many powerful ways. At God's word, he sends out snow and frost and it covers the earth according to his plan and his will. And here he's talking, I think, about how God's word will do what, it, what, what God sends it to do. Uh, it will Run. So, like the psalmist, Paul longs for the word of the Lord to run. So, maybe the Paul has the Old Testament text in mind. I think he does. Um, however, I also believe that Paul might have the Isthmian games in his mind when he makes a metaphor of the gospel and he has the gospel personified as a runner. You need to remember when Paul writes this letter, he's sitting in Corinth. There'll be two different times in the, in the year and a half that he's there that he will be able to observe the Isthmian Games, the second largest games uh, to the Greek Olympic Games uh, in the ancient history of this world. So that would be right outside the city of Corinth. As he's there, he's, he observes these games. These games would include runners competing for a prize. Their moment, you might call it their moment of glorification. So Paul imagines the gospel to be a runner and calls the Thessalonian believers to pray that it runs. He wants the gospel to spread swiftly and victoriously in Corinth just as it had happened in Thessalonica. As this is Paul's first prayer request. Again, help but think you imagine Paul the apostle showing up to one of our prayer meetings and laying out his request for us. Paul, what do you want us to pray for? Pray that Jesus' word, the gospel, would run. That's request number one. This past week, I heard of the amazing work of God uh, that was performed under the old French theologian and preacher Robert Haldane. After his conviction, Robert Haldane was burdened about the darkness of Europe in the 18th century after the Reformation. Things had grown dark again. So he set up a Bible study on Romans on a park bench in Geneva. It was a simple Bible study. 
on a bench, in a park. Yet God used it greatly. Passion gripped Haldane so that he had to proclaim the word on that bench. So, in the fall of 1815, dozens of people were profoundly impacted by the word of the Lord at this bench. And these individuals bore testimony to Christ in strategic locations from that point forward all throughout Europe. I say, men and women, let's pray for this in Virginia Beach. Won't you pray that the word, the gospel, would run in Virginia Beach. Maybe there are other methods and means that we can use to take the word of the Lord to people today. As a matter of fact, I think we're going to mention several ideas that your pastors have been praying about, ideas for mission in our upcoming strategic planning. Won't you pray that God will use one of these ideas or even none of them? A different idea so that the gospel would run from our church in Virginia Beach and the surrounding areas. Perhaps you could interrupt your schedule to join us for our voluntary Saturday morning prayer times in September, 8 a.m. to 9 a.m., September 14th, 21st, 28th. Those meetings in this auditorium, we're going to pray that God does something in our church. These prayer times might not be glamorous. I'm going to tell you right now, we're not going to have donuts. There'll be no bright lights, no great selfie opportunities at these Sunday morning prayer times. But maybe, just maybe, God will hear our prayer and to decide to do something significant through the ministry of Colonial Baptist Church uh, in Virginia Beach and beyond. Maybe the word will run in Virginia Beach for five years. So if you ever ask me what to pray for, this is, remind me to keep having you pray for this. Pray that the word of the Lord will run, that it will speed ahead. And then secondly, he prays that the word of the Lord would be honored. This is a word, doxadza. It literally means to be glorified. This is an unusual request for Paul's. I saw normally... When Paul has an object being glorified, it's a person. Normally it's God the Father, or Jesus Christ the Son, or it can be the name of God, or the name of Jesus, but here it's different. He, he asked that the word of Jesus would be glorified, that it would be honored, and so it really intrigued me this week. And so as I studied this word honored and tried to figure out, well, exactly what is this? Because Paul doesn't normally talk this way that Jesus' word would be glorified, I think my opinion is that he still has those games in mind. He still has those Isthmian games in mind. When the runner had completed well and, run the and, and won the race, he would be honored or glorified. So Paul wants people to glorify Jesus' word, the gospel. And they will do this by respecting its message and receiving it as from God. This is exactly, I think, what Paul had seen in various other places. And, and so he is longing and asking prayer that it would happen in places like Corinth where he's seated when he's writing this. 
In fact, I know Paul had seen this before because in Acts chapter 13, when Paul is in a little town called Pisidian Antioch, Pisidian Antioch, he administered to the Jewish people there, but they ultimately rejected him. So Paul goes to the Gentile people, and as he goes to the Gentile people and begins ministering the gospel there, Acts 13, verse 48 says this, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. So it's a significant moment in the history of the early church, Pisidian Antioch. Nations were beginning to honor and glorify Jesus' word. It says, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading. One of those blessing statements in Acts, there are 12 of them. The whole structure of the book is framed around them. You see it over and over and over again. The word of God was increasing, it was spreading. And men and women, as you, as you read these scriptural accounts of true and genuine churches in the first century, isn't there a part of you that would desire for that to be done here in Virginia Beach? That the word of the Lord would be spreading and that it would be glorified, that people would receive it as a significant word from God. Significant word from God, and that's going to require God to do this. Paul's dream was for the gospel to run and for men and women to honor and glorify it just as it happened when he was with the Thessalonians. When he was with them, not only did the gospel come in word, it came in power and the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. And so Paul prays for that to happen in other places. You see, Paul had a great measure of evangelistic burden I think because he knew that the people of these cities that he was going to that had never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they all were damned without the message that he had. I want you to consider for a moment Paul's burden for others. I could go to any text in the New Testament, any epistle in the New Testament to show you this, but I'm just going to read to you a few verses from Romans. Paul says in Romans 1.14, I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I think of Paul's evangelistic burden for the Jewish people that come out and comes out in Romans 9 verse 1. Paul says this, he says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. He's he's serious about something. Well, what is it? He says, that I have great sorrow and anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. I mean, that's some powerful language that describes the evangelistic zeal of the The heart of the Apostle Paul for the Jewish people. I I wish I could cut myself off. I wish I could be an anathema, cursed, so that the Jewish nation would come to know Jesus Christ as Savior. Romans 10, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer for Israel is that they might be saved. 
Romans 15, verses 20 and 21, Paul says, And thus, I make it my ambition. I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. Not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never heard have been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Paul says, I make it, I make it my ambition to proclaim the gospel. How about you? I find it amazing, amazingly ironic that in this age where believers are rallying together for the gospel and forming coalitions around the gospel that we have never been so bad at sharing it with others, with the lost. According to a recent study that I could barely stomach on the Gospel Coalition website, nearly two-thirds of evangelical believers have not told anyone, anyone, how to be saved in the last six months. Two-thirds. Six months. Not one conversation. God were to take this congregation and start dividing up on one side, those who have shared the gospel of Jesus Christ, those who haven't, what would we find? What would we find? How many people would be on the side of the room to share the gospel? How many people would not? And don't think that this doesn't matter. It does. And don't claim to be a gospel-centered person unless you talk about it around lost people. You can't be a gospel person without sharing it to others. So when was the last time you told your neighbor about Jesus? Paul's primary request is offensive. Pray that the gospel runs and that it is honored. His second request, I call his personal request. And by the way, we're going to go quickly through some of these, but this one we'll take a little bit of time with. Look at verse 2. This is his personal request. And that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. Paul's personal request was that God would deliver him. And I think this request makes more sense to us modern people when we consider a few things. First, we need to consider the various and the severe troubles that Paul often faced in ministry. This past week, I was reading through some of the commentary literature after I'd done my own study in this text. As I was reading through some of them, some, some commentators were giving Paul a hard time because he makes this request to be delivered from the persecution he faced. <laughs> in some sense, they were maybe suggesting or implying that Paul's in some way selfish here. And that really infuriated me. I don't often get angry when I read a book. Suggesting himself. So, well, one, God led him to do this. Holy Spirit led him to do this. So, I mean, your proposal is like crazy. But then, two, I, I couldn't help but I, I think I even said something like this. You know, give Paul a break. Give him a break. If you faced half of what he faced, then maybe I would listen to your critique. I'll just read you a few passages in 2 Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. 
Indeed, we felt that we'd received the sentence of death, but that we, uh, uh, but, but, but this was given to us that we might rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 8, Paul says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. There are other texts I could read, but this is my favorite one, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 24. Paul says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea uh, on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers from false brothers in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from all the other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and am I not weak? Who is made to fall and am I not indignant? We, consider, we can understand Paul's personal request to be delivered from wicked and evil men when we consider all the various and severe trials that he went through. It's a natural request for him to make. But I think second, we can also understand this more when we consider what he's going through in Corinth when he writes this. Turn over to Acts 18 for just a moment. Acts 18 for one moment. So where is Paul when he's writing this letter? Where is Paul when he makes this request, please pray that I'll be delivered from wicked and evil men? Well, he's in Corinth, planting the church there. And just so happens, under the inspiration of Spirit and the sovereign plan of God, we have an account of what he was going through then. So look in your Bible, Acts 18, verse 12. 18 verse 12, but when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. So as Paul is writing 2 Thessalonians, this sort of attack is going on in Corinth. Verse 13, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. You get it? So the city is in an uproar, and they're saying Paul is teaching against the law, and they bring him before Gallio. So Paul asks for prayer. Pray that we would be delivered from wicked and evil men and women. And notice what happens, maybe as a result of prayer. Verse 14, look in your Bible, verse 14. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio, a ruler, said to the Jews, if, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them off from the tribunal. And they seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave. You get this? So, like, this is a really precarious situation. Things are escalating. They're beating people. They're beating the ruler of the synagogue. And Paul... Nothing. Gallio, the proconsul, he just says, yeah, I'm not even going to deal with it. You deal with it. And they don't even touch Paul, and he stays many days longer, and he goes away in the ship. How do you think that happened? Maybe through the faithful prayer of people like the Thessalonian believers. Paul said, Paul said, here's my personal request, that 
that you would pray that we'd be delivered from evil men and evil women. Now go back to 2 Thessalonians. I think finally this prayer request makes more sense to us when we consider that Paul's identity was wrapped up entirely in his relationship to Christ and the furtherance of Jesus' word. To those who would criticize Paul here and say he's being selfish, I say they need to read more of Paul. They should see how Paul describes his very identity. I think Philippians 1, verse 21. For to me to live is Christ. Living is Christ, dying is gain. See, Paul prays for the advance of the word. He prays for his own physical comfort or safety from people because he knows his continued existence would mean that he would have more opportunity to share the word of the Lord, the word that comes from Jesus, the gospel. So the powerful, God-gifted, God-called Apostle Paul asked this little church to pray for him. He asked for them to make defensive and offensive prayers. Pray that he would be delivered from wicked and evil men. That's defensive. And pray that the word of Jesus that we proclaim would run and be glorified. That's offensive. Pray that our proclamation of Jesus' words would inflict damage on Satan's strongholds. What a great prayer request. That God would open blind eyes and soften damned souls to the message of Jesus. Pray for this. And so before we move on, and actually it looks like this is about all we'll accomplish today. Let's close with this. Do you pray this way? Do you pray this way for your pastors? And for other vocational ministers of the gospel? I will say from my very first moments in ministry here, I believe that you have supported me in prayer. I receive regular notices of prayer. I have a text on my phone that I have not read yet today, but I know they're they're reminders of prayer. I've received letters, thank you cards, emails, texts, homemade notes written on paper with crayon from your children. But pray that the word that we proclaim would be honored and would run all throughout Virginia Beach. I'm also mindful of the fact that some of, I think, the most dedicated believers who've prayed for me in the three years I've been here are now in heaven. I can't wait to one day see them and thank them. And I sure hope that God continues to raise up others who will pray that the word of the Lord would run and be honored. Furthermore, Each missionary associated with our church must be able to depend on prayer from this congregation as a whole, from us in smaller groups, and for us as individuals. Our missionaries are facing attacks from Satan. Our missionaries, by the way, reveal their belief in the necessity and the efficacy of prayer by writing us prayer letters regularly. Why do they do that? Because they believe God will respond 
to the prayers of people for them. So do you pray for our missionaries? What missionaries have you prayed for this week? Any? None? How sad, right? Repent and pray. Repent and pray. Do our ABS classes pray for our missionaries? That the word would run in Africa, in London. The word would run Utah. Does our church pray? So I skip three pages of my notes. In this text, many of us have been confronted by a strange, a foreign thing, a believer zealously committed to and firmly believing in prayer. Maybe you've heard dozens of sermons on prayerlessness before. So many that your heart is calloused under layers of insensitivity and you're comforted by the prayerlessness of other believers. It's my prayer that the Spirit of God would break through, would pierce our hearts and remind us of the value and the very necessity of prayer. One of the greatest apostles who ever lived, a light to the Gentiles, knew that he needed prayer. So do we. We need to pray for our missionaries, for our pastors, and pray for each other that the word of the Lord would run and be honored. Let's pray together. Father, perhaps it is true that our church has not been committed to prayer the way that you would have us. And it starts with the pastors, with the pastor. So Father, please forgive me for my failure to keep prayer at the center of what we do. Thank you for the reminder. God, we could produce any strategic plan. We can use any adjectives and verbs and nouns to portray like powerful strategies, but they'd be nothing unless you, Father, bless and work in our hearts to do it. May this text, this sermon, be a reminder to us of the necessity of prayer. I pray, Lord, that the gospel would run, would run in Virginia Beach because of our faithful ministry of it, sharing of it. I pray that we'd be true gospel-centered people who proclaim it to lost people. And Lord, uh, I would pray as well that you would bless our missionaries who are serving in difficult areas. 
Many of them are facing persecution, threat, suffering. They're ridiculed or mocked. They're in postmodern cultures where, where no one listens to truth in the Word. But, Father, I pray that you protect them from the insults and the persecution of evil men and evil women and the evil one who would like nothing better than to destroy them. And I pray, Lord, that this week we might hear exciting news of how the gospel sped along, how it furthered, and how people finally decided to glorify this word by obeying it. We thank you, Lord. We pray that you would work in our hearts significantly in this week. Help us to live this way. In Jesus' name, amen.